Jesus has a comeback. And we're talking about the setback of discouragement. Anybody ever here deal with discouragement? Yes, absolutely. So we're going to talk about discouragement, and so I'm going to define it for you. Discouragement is a loss of confidence or enthusiasm. You lose your confidence, you lose your enthusiasm, you just don't want to do it anymore. Due to deterring or difficulties or setbacks. So what discouragement is, is you have a setback, things are not going the way they are, that you wanted it to, you become discouraged. Discouragement is literally a lack of courage, you lose courage. So here's three things about discouragement. Number one, it's universal. Everybody deals with it. Everybody deals with discouragement, so you're not alone. So you should never feel isolated and say, I'm the only one that feels discouraged, because you're not. Everyone deals with discouragement. Second thing is, is discouragement is very powerful. Literally, you don't want to, you just, you just lose all hope. You just don't want to move forward. And then the third thing about discouragement is it's, you know, it's recurring. You're going to learn, have to learn to deal with discouragement. Or you're going to have to learn where discouragement comes from and what some tools are to deal with discouragement because discouragement isn't going to happen to you just one time. Don't we wish it would? It was, it was only one event. Like we had one time we had to play the game of discouragement. Wouldn't that be wonderful? But that's not the, that's not the case. We have to deal with discouragement often. It's recurring. And so I'm going to deal with you this morning. We're going to talk this morning about uh, the book of Nehemiah, a little bit, uh, specifically Nehemiah chapter 4. So if you want to follow along, you can follow along. Uh, Nehemiah, what's going on in the book of Nehemiah is 70 years the people have been exiled from the land. They were removed from Israel by the Babylonians for 70 years. The Babylonian Empire has fallen and the Persian Empire has taken its, play, taken its place. And the Persian Empire, uh, the king at the time was named Cyrus. And so the Cyrus allowed the Hebrew people to return to their land and he allowed them to return to their land to rebuild Jerusalem, to rebuild the, the temple, and also to rebuild the wall around the city. And their return to the land happened under three kings. There were three successive kings uh, that were very favorable to the Hebrew people. And they were Cyrus, uh, Darius, and Artaxerxes, or Xerxes. And you see them play out prominently, not only in history, but in the Bible. And so they permitted them to return and to rebuild the wall. And what's happening here in Nehemiah chapter 4 is they, they, instead of building the temple in the city, they're trying to build the wall around the city, or at least a section of the wall, so that they can have some protection. So they're trying to fortify themselves. And what's interesting about this story is that by this time, 70 years of captivity, there were probably over a million Jews living in Babylon, yet only 50,000 of them chose to return. Isn't that interesting? It's amazing to me that having so many people with that call and the summons to to their own land, so many, so many people with a promise over their life. There was a million, God made that promise to over a million people, said you can come back. Go back to the land. But only 50,000 took them up on the promise. It's often the way it is in the church. God makes promises to us, and a very small minority actually take him up on what he says. It's true. Promises are made to us. Promises are decreed to us. But very few of us actually involve ourselves or engage ourselves in them. It's the same principle in business. If you go to a business seminar or you go to some, some sort of instruction where they're telling you or teaching you something, the percentages are 96% of the people in the room will not execute on what they heard. So only 4% of the people that actually hear the truth or hear the knowledge are actually going to take the knowledge and do something with it. That's sad. Really, if you think about it, I mean, I was, I was sharing this story uh, a couple days ago, and I had heard, uh, I knew this stuff from business, and a, a person was saying that these are the things that the Christians fail at. They fail to understand their identity, and they fail to, they fail to harvest what God has for them. They fail to step into what God has for them. And I knew from business that 96% of people won't execute. They won't do anything with it. You, they could, it could be crystal clear knowledge. It could be revelation from heaven as to what they're supposed to do, but only 4% will actually do it. And I determined in my heart, I want to be that 4%. And so here you have the same instance happening here. And God puts a call on, on a million people and says, you can return to your homeland. You can go back and possess what your ancestors lost. And only 50,000 of them took him up on the promise. You have to determine in your heart, are you going to be the majority or you're going to be the minority? The minority wins in God's kingdom, so you know. Anytime the majority is happening in the church, there's, that's often the wrong direction. It's always with the minority. God's power and purpose is always with the minority. 
Gideon, can we talk? I mean, over and over again, we, we, we see that same scenario going over, uh, that God always, the favor is always with the few that will take him up on his promises. And so they're rebuilding the wall, and it says in Nehemiah 4.10, it says, now about that time, the people, uh, the people of Jerusalem began to complain, saying, we're tired, and we're worn out, and we can't keep up this pace. Anybody ever feel that way? I'm tired, I'm worn out, I can't keep up this pace. Right? So what's going on is they're rebuilding the wall, and they were halfway through. Right? So they're halfway done with it, but there was no end in sight. What they were failing to do, one of the things they were failing to do is they had no clear goal of what done looked like. They were just working aimlessly without a goal. And they didn't even realize that they were halfway through. Had they realized how far they come, they probably wouldn't have been so discouraged. But because they not only didn't realize how far they had come, they didn't know how much further they had to go. And so they're like, this work is going to go on forever. This is an endless cycle of nothingness. We can't do this. We're tired and we're worn out. So they're physically and emotionally exhausted. It looked like this is never going to end. It's taking more time. Anybody know this? Anybody know what I'm talking about? You get discouraged. You think it's going to take three days and it takes three weeks, right? (laughs) I'll get that garage cleaned out in a day. Yeah, right, okay. So it looked like it was never going to end. It was taking more time than they expected, and they had no concept of how far they'd come. One of the things you need to do when you're tired and you're discouraged, and there's a lot of things that you should do, but one of the things is, is, not, is, is just having a clear goal established, having, knowing what done looks like, and also realizing the progress that you've made. And a lot of us, we, we look at where we are in light of where we want to be. Sometimes you need to look at where you are in light of where you've been. You know what I'm saying? I mean, if you look at the progress, some of you that walk with the Lord, you're like, yeah, but I'm not at this place yet, but look where you started from. Look at what your starting point is. And one of the things the Lord, I felt like the Lord showed me this a lot, and I didn't start at zero. A lot of people start at zero. A lot of people start off life at 10. They've got intact families. They've got a lot of structure around them that actually gives them a great advantage over those that don't. I started at about negative three, right? I didn't have any advantages, And when I came to Christ, I realized that Jesus is the only advantage that I really need. It's true. It's true. And if I will allow him and I will follow him and I will do what he says, the promises that I heard and I understood were that God's going to maximize my life. And he'll take me out of negative circumstances and he'll take me from negative three. And it took me years to get to zero. And finally, when I got to zero, I was discouraged because I wasn't at level five or whatever, wherever it is I wanted to be. But I had to realize, well, at least I'm not negative two anymore. You understand that? And you have to, sometimes you've got to evaluate where you've come from and where you started from and not be so discouraged about where you are and look at where you've come from. That alone will encourage you. They had no concept. You roll the next slide. They had no concept. They failed to create a margin for rest. This is a big one. You know, all the things that God does, what's interesting about human beings is that uh, uh, we have two class, but, but a lot of us, you'll be a workaholic. You'll work and you will never stop. You know what I'm saying? You could work nonstop. You could work, 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 work. Jesus put down, when God created the world, he put down six days to work, one day to rest. One day not just to rest, but to value yourself in light of how heaven sees you. And that from that one day, that one day was to be a sacred day. It was to be a a day where you honored God and where God's honor could actually be restored to you and God's purposes and power could be implemented in your life and that God would empower you on that one day so that you could go forth for the rest of your week knowing that you're not just a a cog in a machine or you're just not somebody being ground beneath the millstone of life where life is just rolling over you. We have to create a margin for rest. Say this with me. My best requires rest. You're no good to anybody when you're tired, okay? Let's talk to the ladies. I like to talk to the ladies for a second. Is your husband any good when he's tired? I mean, I'm like, I'm like, get real quiet in here. He's, we're all looking at, all the men are looking at their wives like, really? Huh? Yeah. We're like bears, man. We like, we're like, rawr, rawr, rawr. she's the same way. You know, your spouse is not, the, the, living together in close quarters, you really get to see family dynamics. You really get to see, you get to see your dysfunction, oh, happy day, and you get to see her dysfunction, oh, happy day. Then when you have kids, you get to see everybody's dysfunction. So it's just one big dysfunctional happy family trying to live for Jesus, and it's just a wonderful experience. But one of the things that you realize is that fatigue and being tired causes a lot of stress. You don't have any patience. 
You don't want to talk nice. You know, you're barking out orders. You're doing all kinds of stuff, right? So in order for you just to be a, just to be a, a normal person, you have to create a margin of rest. It's amazing, too, like if you, if you have a lot of stuff going on and you actually, what a few hours of sleep will do or what a few hours of distraction will do, a day where you're just not thinking about all the things that you have to think about, a day where you can actually sleep in or a day where you can actually have some perspective, you know? And, and that it's, it's amazing how much energy is restored into you just by giving yourself a margin for rest. Uh, anybody know who Vince Lombardi is? A few of you. Yeah, that's right. Well, we got a football fan right there. So Vince Lombardi, co- uh, famous coach of the, the Super Bowl trophies called the Lombardi Trophy. So uh, football coach of the Green Bay Packers. He says, fatigue makes weaklings of us all. So when you're tired, you're weak. Right? And here it is in Deuteronomy 25. It says, never forget the Amalekites. The Amalekites are a type and shadow of, de- of, of the devils and, and the demonic. It says, never forget when you were attacked, when you were exhausted. They attacked you when you were weary, and they struck those down, those who began to lag behind. And so when you're tired and you're weary, you're vulnerable. And so you need to create a margin for, a, a margin for rest. That's one of the causes of discouragement. You're tired. You've been doing it too long. You've been at it too long. You can't see how far you've come. You can't see where the, you're just so close that you can't, you, you can't see anything. The second thing is frustration. So we have fatigue. We have frustration. Frustration, here it is in a verse that says, that, besides that, there's so much rubble and trash to be removed. It's like, we're tired. We don't know when this is going to end. They didn't know how far they had come, and they didn't know how far they were going, so there was no clear vision. You have to have a clear vision. You don't have a clear vision. You don't even, if you don't know what the target is, you know if you've hit it or not. If you don't know what completed looks like, how do you know when you're finished? You don't. So you have to cre- create a clear target. And then the other thing is, is all this rubble is being in, in the way. You have to clear the rubble out of your life, right? Okay? So this is part of the thing. There's emotional commitments with no priority. We have emotional commitments we have this, that becomes rubble to us. We have emotional issues that becomes rubble to us. We have all of this stuff going on inside of us, and the stuff that's going on inside of us actually creates um, piles of stuff that we have to deal with, and you become frustrated. So here's the other thing. Commitments with no priority and other people's dramas. Can I get a witness? Right? Other people's dramas are huge drains of time. Huge drains of time. Getting involved in family dramas and all this other stuff. And, you know, I'm at this stage in my life where I'm like, I'm moving into this other place and I'm going this different direction. And so I've had this saying, I've been saying it for a little while. My wife asked me to stop saying it. I go, I don't care. 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 And she'd be like, could you please stop saying I don't care? And so now my word is, I'm carefree. 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 That's what I say. So I don't, I don't want to be involved. I have adult children. I don't want to be involved in there. I don't want to be involved in my mother-in-law. I don't want to be involved in all, the, all of the peripheral, peripheral dramas. I don't want to get dragged into other people's dramas. I don't want to be involved in that. It's a waste of my time. It's not my circus. It's not my monkeys, right? <laughs> Here's Jesus. Call upon the Lord. He can help you. And so what happens is, is that becomes rubble in our life. Some of you, you, you know, the, the family just grabs you and just like a vacuum cleaner just drains everything out of you. Whenever there's a drama, you're right at the middle of it. That's rubble. You're going to be very frustrated. You're going to become very frustrated, and you're not going to make a lot of progress in your life. Some of you, there's a lot of emotional issues that are going on inside of you. You have some undealt with emotional pains. You have some undealt with um, insecurities. You have um, some undealt with like hurts. You have to deal with that. Because you're not going to make any progress, and you're going to get frustrated, and you're going to know why, because those are the things that's keeping you back. You have to deal with your personal junk. What is that? It means your attitude. Some of you, the rubble in your life is your attitude. You've got a bad attitude. You need to come over to the sunny side of the street, okay? Happy day. Glory in the Lord. Get happy about something. Paul's standing in chains in front of King Agrippa, been beaten, thrown in jail, just like having gone through so much, and he stands in front of King Agrippa, and King Agrippa, the king, begins to address Paul, and the first words out of Paul's mouth are, I think myself happy. <laughs> There's half a verse for you. You guys need to put it on your mirror in the morning, and some of you need to think yourself happy. You need to find a reason to get happy. Pick something. Find a reason to praise. We quoted Habakkuk last week. He said, even though everything is lost, even though there's no reason for me to be joyful, I will find a reason to praise you. Are you breathing? Happy day. 
Is the sun shining? Happy day. You live in the United States. Happy day. Happy day. You're not in Venezuela. You're not in, you're not in, you're not, you, you live in the greatest country in the world. It's got a lot of dysfunctions, 100%, but you're never going to find a place of opportunity quite like this one. Search the globe. Happy day. Happy day. Find, some, find a reason to get happy. If you know Jesus, happy day. If you know the Holy Spirit, happy, happy day. You have a church home and a church family and real community and real relationships with real people and not religious nonsense, happy day. Happy day. Find a reason to get happy. And here's the deal. When you don't deal with your attitude, you don't deal with your pain, you don't deal with your sorrow, you don't deal with your bitterness, I want you to say this with me. If I don't deal with my junk, my junk is going to deal with me. That's right. If you don't deal with your personal junk, your junk will deal with you. It's going to come out, and your life's going to go sideways. And what's crazy, so I'd like to talk to the older people, the over 35 in the crowd for just a moment. What's, what's interesting is when you're under 35, especially even when you're a teenager, you have issues, but for some reason, you're able to contain it when you're younger. When you get older, it starts coming out, getting weird, all the stuff. It's just all of, the, all of it just starts coming out, and you can't control it anymore. Your junk will eventually deal with you. If there's pride, if there's insecurity, if there's pain, if there's selfishness, if there's greed, if there, whatever it is, if you don't begin the process of not just confronting that with disciplines and then confronting that with healing, that's why we're doing a school on inner healing. The Christian, the, the biggest problem in the church is emotional damage. Christians are damaged at the core of their being. The mind, the will, and the emotion, train wrecked, living through impulsive behaviors. You know what an impulsive behavior is? A behavior that you're just compelled to do it, and you don't know why. I get around people like that, and I just get mad. And I don't really know why. I got no real reason. But when I'm around that or I'm in that circumstance, I just get I just rage. You know, or you get insecure. Or you, you know, there's no reason for me to feel this way. Why does this keep happening to me? Why does this keep coming on to me over and over and over again? There's a brokenness at the emotional level. It's the mind, the will, and the emotions. That's the soul. The suke, the psyche, is what the Greek says. Your soma, body, suke, soul, and spirit, pneuma. Three parts to your being. Each one has an appropriated healing to it. Somebody said, you got a verse for that? Absolutely. You restore my soul. That's what David said. The restoration of the soul. Jesus provides for the restoration of the soul. You have to begin to deal with this. You know, listen, okay, I, I'm going to just... I, we have to stop playing games. Like, we, have, we, we, we pretend that everything's okay when it's not. And the church has no real method in which to heal people emotionally. We don't. We pass them off. If, if we even believe in psychology, we pass them off on psychologists. And most of the time, the psychologists can't help you at all. They can't help you. And those of you that have been to psychologists, and I've met a few of them, people are like, I've been to a psychologist for 10 years. I'm like, yeah, how's it going? It's horrible. I can't, you know, it's, it's ongoing. And I know therapists, and they'll tell you, they treat, they, all they try to do is give you management tools. All they're trying to do is give you a tool to manage, not undo, not heal. They're just giving you management. Well, I'm going to give you some tools to manage your anger. Well, if you've got an anger and a rage problem, there's not a lot of tools that are going to keep that. I mean, those of you that know what I'm talking about, when you go to rage mode, I don't care what tools you got. You're like the Hulk. You're just, Rawr! there's nothing going to hold you back. You're there, Right? And some of you, it's depression. Oh, we're going to give you some tools to manage your depression, manage your loneliness, manage how you feel about yourself. Well, when depression comes on you, there's not a lot of tools that are going to help you. Down you go. Down you go. The problem is that there's a root to that, and you have to undo the root. It's a lie. It's a hurt. It's a pain. Inner healing is required. You don't have to, but I suggest you do. <laughs> You can't always see your junk. Here's a good one. You can't, say this with me, I can't always see my junk, but others can. <laughs> you ever watch that show, Hoarders? They don't think they have junk at all. They walk into the house and it's like, whoa. And they're like, man, what are you going to do with all this junk? And they're like, oh, that's not junk. Those are newspapers that I've been collecting since 1965. You know, oh, what, what, what about all this, this pile of junk of pots and pans? Well, 
I used to cook for my children on that pot pan there. Yeah, but it's broken. I know, but that, that pan means something to me. They're just living lives filled with junk, and they can't see it. But every, it's obvious to everybody else. It's abundantly clear. <laughs> if you, don't, you can't see your junk, but others can. Pack rats that can't get rid of every, anything. Emotionally attached to everything. That's a problem. That's a problem. Now, I'm not saying, oh, nothing. some things are sentimental. I get it. But if you're carrying around a pot and pan that's broken because you cooked your kids breakfast on it when they were little, and you're saving that pan, that's a problem. Take a picture of it. Put it in a photo album. You don't, you know, you don't need to stack it up in the corner of your house. So we're pack rats. You know, we do that. And then the other thing, a lot of teams, why people hoard or why people do this is you're people pleasers. You allow other people to unload their junk on you. Some of you, the best thing you can do in 2019 is to use this word. You ready? You're going to say it with me. No. That's right. We have two types of people, people that can't say no and people that love the word no. <laughs> there are people who love the word no. First answer, no. 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 Okay, just going to share my junk with you. So I have, I have a beautiful, wonderful, powerfully strong-willed son whom I love and adore and I bless and I honor. But anything you ask him, his first word is no. And I don't come from that kind of household, right? I don't come from that family at all. And so my wife's a little bit more in tune with that dynamic than me. And so I'm like, I just don't know what to do with him. I don't know what to do with Elias. You know, I, don't know, I have no idea. And Sherry goes, well, it's easy. Just use, this, just use his favorite word on him. Every time he asks for you for something, just use the same word back on him. And so I started telling him no. You know, he'd be like, Dad, can I? I'm like, no. And he'd be like, completely shocked because I'd be like, Elias, I need you to take the trash out or, you know, just things. And he'd be like, no, I'm not doing that. No, I'm not doing that. No, 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 no. He wouldn't even finish the sentence and he's already got the word no. Kind of like, shh, shh. You know, it's kind of like one of those. Some of you, you need to learn the word no. And the way you can learn the word no is by getting around people who know how to say no. Just watch them. Watch the person that says no. Learn how they are. Learn that this is not an emotional decision. And, or that this decision that I'm making, by saying yes to someone, you're saying no to something else. By saying no to someone, you're saying yes to something else. Now, some of you, you say no to everything. You need to loosen up a little bit. You need to, like, you know, take the screws off. Have a Cinnabon. Chill out. It's all right. Right? It's all good. For the most part, those people are usually not the ones most effective. It's the person that can't say no because other people just unload their junk in your yard. You know, and they just, you know, they see you coming. They're looking for you. They got problems and they're like, oh, I just got to go find so-and-so. They'll understand me. And then they just unload all their junk on you. And you have to go, no. You have to come to this place and say no. Right, so here's what I want you to know. So when it comes to hoarding and it comes to clearing the rubble out of your life, right, here's what I want you to know. Say this with me. Anything... Ready? This is important. You need to memorize this. That's why I'm reinforcing it. Anything, anyone, or any place that does not bring me joy, I'm getting rid of it. If it doesn't bring you joy, get rid of it. Get rid of it. If you got a wardrobe in there and you got shirts that you haven't worn for seven years, get rid of it. Shoes, you know, like, oh man, you know, your shoes are falling apart, but yeah, I love these shoes. Is it bringing you joy? Well, kind of. Well, take my wife would be like this take a picture of it. Here you go. Then over, over her shoulder into the garbage can, it would go. So that was my world when I got married. It was like that. Come home, back home from work one day, all my clothes are gone. I'm like, where'd my clothes go? <laughs> She's like, you're not wearing that anymore. I'd be like, I got like three t shirts and two pairs of jeans. That's all I got left. I mean, didn't bring her joy, so it's gone. It's out of there. Anything that prevents you, say this, anything that prevents me from positive, meaningful change, get rid of it. Whatever is impeding your progress, get rid of it. Cast aside every weight that does so easily besets you, the Bible says. Run the race of purpose with endurance. What is encumbering you? People, places, things, attitudes, pains, traumas. Where, what is making you get stuck to where you can't go forward? What is, that's the root of your frustration. Your root of your frustration is that you want to go forward, but there's a dysfunction that's preventing you from doing so. This is brutal. This is hard for the emos among us. Very hard. And I'm an emo. I, I feel, but I've 
since trained myself into a more stern discipline, right? But some of you, you think that, you, that if, you, if you feel, that if you don't feel or you don't have compassion, you're a bad person. Who told you that? Jesus said no a lot of times. Like, well, I just want to be like Jesus. Jesus just said yes to everybody. I'm like, have you read your Bible? He said no all the time. No, 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 no. Come back to the city. Nope, go in here. Come over here and do that. Nope, go in here. All the time. He said no. And the reason that he said no is because he was serving a higher purpose. And anything that got, rid, got in the way or encumbered him on the journey to the higher purpose, he got rid of it. You can continue to spiral and continue to stay in the place that you are. We said this over the last few weeks. If you want what you say it with me, if I want what I've never had, I must do what I've never done. If you want what you've never had, you got to do what you've never done. And here's another one. The place from where you, if you, if you want to say this, if I want to get from where I, where I am to where I want to be, I have to cross a bridge called change. You're not getting there if you don't cross the bridge of change. You're not, you're not going to, nothing's going to happen. If you keep doing the same thing, same people, same place, the same thing, different day, different year, but everything's going on, nothing's going to change. Nothing. Anything that doesn't bring you joy or anything that prevents you from moving forward in a meaningful way, eliminate it. The world, the people will survive without you. It's true. You think, well, what are they going to do? They need me. They'll find someone else. Just say no. They're going to go find someone else. There are people that are consumers, not communers. We're to be communers, which means we commune together. We share one to the other. If there's no mutual value in the relationship, that's a toxic relationship. Just so you know, a relationship is to have mutual value one to the other. If it doesn't have mutual value, the person that is not sharing mutual value is a consumer. All they're doing is taking. They're not giving. It's a difference between being communing, where we are together on a journey, sharing, being part of one another's lives, strength to strength, my strength to your weakness, your strength to my weakness, my strength into your strength, your strength into my strength. We share it together. That's communing. That's where we get the word communion from. We're to be a communing church, not a consuming church. That's the difference. And so we don't consume from one another's lives. Even as the believer, we come, and take, we come to church and we consume the word of God, which we should, but we should consume it in order to commune with it. You understand that? The word profits you nothing if you don't do anything with it. It's, the Bible says it's like looking at yourself in the mirror and walking away and forgetting what you look like. That's what it means. You know, you have to do something with what you're given or do something with what you're here. Don't just be hearers, be doers. Here's Psalm 25. Come, Lord, and show me mercy, for I feel helpless. Here's a verse for you guys. This is a prayer. Let's just say it together. It's just therapy. Why not? Say, come, Lord, and show me mercy, for I feel helpless, overwhelmed, and in deep distress. Psalm 25, 16. Okay, so they, they have all of that going on. They have fatigue. They have, um, they have frustration. And then they have faithlessness. The people say, we realize now we cannot finish this wall. We'll never be able to finish it. They realize that their ability and their efforts are not going to get the job done. So you know, if you're part of the kingdom and the gospel, that's the most healthy place you could possibly be. You, health, health begins, change begins when you realize you can't do it. That's where it all starts. And so now, they're, they're, so now they're having faithlessness. And the problem is, is that they put faith in their own abilities. And your own abilities, just like Nehemiah and these people, is going to bring you about halfway. Oh, you can get there. Some of you got extraordinary levels of talent and ability. And I mean, you, you got just endurance. You got all kinds of determination. And you've got just raw ability to be able to do things. But your ability, no matter how good it is, is only going to take you about halfway. And that's what you see here. They did amazing doing it halfway. They got halfway. Same thing with the disciples. Their ability got them out into the middle of the lake, but they couldn't go any further. They needed Jesus to come along to take them home. This is exactly what's happening here. There's one of the priests that's ministering during this time, and his name is Zerubbabel. And the Lord says, it's not by might, it's not by power, it's by my spirit. Because the priest, because they're rebuilding the temple, the wall, and the city, this is all going on as part of a, a, a narrative through a lot of the Old Testament books. It's all happening at the same time. And the priest is feeling overwhelmed. And the, and, the, and the prophet comes to the priest. He says, you're overwhelmed. You're discouraged because you think you have to do it. 
It's not by might. It's not by power. It's not by human ability. It's by my spirit. It is a divine partnership with my spirit. That's the only way this is going to get done. So you have to realize that your, faith, your, your abilities are going to take you about halfway. I'm going to give you three verses, right, to show you that you can't do it. I don't care how smart you are. This is, again, a fatal flaw among the Christians is we think we have to do it. I just got to love God more. Oh, we just got to love God more. I just got to live more holy. This is the crazy stuff we teach. You know what I like to ask people? I just was, there's this pastor, I was just listening to this guy this week and he was talking about, we need to live more holy before the Lord. I always gonna go, how's that working for you? How you doing? How's holiness working out for you? How is loving God more? How's that working? The guy, this guy, this other guy writes this thing and he says, well, what if, what if all we had was the Sermon on the Mount? How would that affect our churches? And I wrote back to him, and I said, John 3 is more relative to the mission of Christ than the Sermon on the Mount, than Matthew 5. Because I said, the, the, the Sermon on the Mount is the manifesto of the kingdom. God's calling us unto something. But you cannot do anything in the Sermon on the Mount without the power of the Spirit. Nothing. Zero. And you only get the power of the Spirit if you're born again. So John 3, being born again, is a little more relative than Matthew 5. And this is, again, where, our, where, where we are. We're Christian dumb. We think we can actually do this stuff. Love your enemies? You can't do it. Build a wall? You can't do that either. You can't. You can't do it without him. You can do it with him. And he won't do it without you. He will do it with you. Again, these are misnomers. This is wrong thinking within the church. This is not the kingdom of God. God will not do it for you. He'll do it with you. So sooner you understand this idea that it's a partnership, it has always been a partnership, and it will always be a partnership, your life's going to change. Your life can change today if you come to that understanding. If you come to the understanding, wow, i got to go into business this morning, i got, I got all this stuff to do, I don't even know what I'm going to do, I'm not just going to pray. Praying's good. I'm all in on prayer. prayer. Prayer paves the way. Prayer creates the path. But we need to receive not just prayer, but power. So you pray, and then you receive the power and the wisdom, and then you follow the path that you laid out in prayer. And then you have something called dynamic change. We like to pray, but we don't like the power. And we think the power is in prayer. The power is in prayer, but the power is also internal. The power is also in the spirit. So you can pray, but then receive the wisdom of God and go forth into what you just prayed for. Step into that. You can't do it on your own. You can't. You cannot. And this is why we have a lot of frustration, a lot of discouragement, a lot of fatigue. Oh, I just can't be holy. No, you can't. There's no holiness without the Holy Spirit. Let's be clear. You cannot be holy. Without the Holy Spirit, you're not holy. Let's just be honest. You're not thinking good thoughts, right? You're, whatever the level is, when you're in the Spirit, it's all like, you're like, wow, why can't I be like this all the time? Because you're in the Spirit. When you're not in the Spirit, you don't think good things. Somebody does you wrong, you're, you're already plotting, oh man, I'm gonna, you know. <laughs> you're not thinking good things. You're not loving your enemy at all, at all. And then the enemy, then the devil will condemn you and go, look, you're supposed to be a Christian. Love your enemies. Look what happens to you. Every time somebody wrongs you, you go and do vengeance. You know, the Bible says vengeance is the Lord, but you like to take vengeance. Oh, 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 guilt, condemnation, shame. And then we just go, I suck. I'm no good. I can't do this. And you can't. That's what you, you'll see. Human deficiency will be clear to you. Everything Jesus tells you to do is impossible. And he will intentionally show you how deficient you are in order to show you how sufficient he is. That's the truth. And your sufficiency is in Christ, in the spirit. And so this is, again, again, I tell you, and you have to figure this out. And if you stick around here long enough, you'll learn it. But you have to develop a relationship with the Holy Spirit. You have to learn to hear him. You have to learn to access him. You have to learn to activate him. You have to learn to follow him. Without the Holy Spirit, you know what I say to the believer? Good luck. Good luck. And we think we have the Holy Spirit because we get the warm glow. Ooh, I just feel that warm glow. Oh, that's the Holy Spirit right there. I get a little goosebump. Goosebump. Down my left arm. Don't, don't go over. Oh, oh, okay, Holy Spirit, you can, you can just give me a goosebump there. Don't go any further. Just right there. Don't do anything. Or we think that's it. That's not it. The Holy Spirit is power, dunamis. The Holy Spirit is grace. The Holy Spirit is love. The Holy Spirit is wisdom, clarity, 
He's all of that. He is the sufficiency of all things. He is the manifester of the kingdom. Jesus says he takes from what is mine and gives it to you. So everything that Jesus paid for in the covenant, including salvation, the, the Holy Spirit is the one who activates salvation, so you, didn't, so you know. You become born again by the Spirit, right? And so the Holy Spirit takes everything that Jesus paid for and makes it known to you. So without the Holy Spirit, nothing that Jesus did will be made known to you. Nothing. You can do knowledge, you can do intellect, you can do all of the things, all of the structures and all of the constructs that we create within the church, but what we're doing is we create pharisaical institutions that have no power. Just like of old, we have all of the churches that have all of the right knowledge, arrogant finger pointers, arrogant finger pointers, knowing everything, know all the right, know everything. We're just full of knowledge. We can expound the Greek and the Hebrew. We can transliterate the Bible from end to end, espousing doctrine and dogmas, creating them according to our own wills and our own purposes, but have no power. Full of knowledge, but couldn't care less. Indifferent. The only way you're going to care is by the Holy Spirit. You have compassion through the Spirit. You don't have compassion in and of yourself. You're indifferent. You, look, you, know what you, you know what you do when you're in you? You're going to go, not my problem. That's human. Divine is somebody needs to do something there. That's not the kingdom of God. Lord, when you feel that burden and compassion, again, it's by the Spirit. Holy Spirit's important. So I'm going to give you three verses to show you you can't do it. Jesus said, I'm the vine. This is my life verse right here. I'm the vine. You are the branches, John 15, 5. If you remain in me, in me, and I in you, there's the Spirit and the power, you will bear fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. It can't get any clearer than that. Without me, you can't do a thing. That's why I tell people, good luck, right? So here's Zechariah. He says to the priest, this is the verse I quoted, this is the word of the Lord to the priest Zerubbabel, who's trying to do these trees, working with Nehemiah and Ezra, trying to rebuild the wall and trying to build up everything. And the Lord says to him, you're not going to be able to do it by yourself. Not going to happen. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit. Not going to happen, Okay. Then you have Galatians 3, and again, I love the book of Galatians. He says, are you so foolish? Having begun in the spirit, do you now meet, are you now able to do this, or are you now you able to bring perfection forth in the flesh? This is what kills me even in the church. We get born again by the spirit, and then we think we can fulfill everything by doing some rituals, or doing some, some kind of crazy uh, checklist that we create. You're born of the spirit to follow the spirit, right? That's why when you see new believers, they're just like, woo! You know, lit up, joyful, glistening in their eyes, you know, song in their heart, just like, wow, Jesus. And then we come in and we establish doctrinal parameters around them and say, you might want to calm down. Just calm down here. It's a long race, Kevin. You don't want to burn all your energy in the front. You know how many times I've been told to calm down? And you know how many pastors told me to calm down? <laughs> they tell me to calm down. I'm like, I don't want to calm down. I'm on fire. I'm with Jesus and I burn. What do you want from me? I'm more alive now than I've ever been. I tried to calm down. I tried to conform to their ways of thinking. I tried to be that and I, I was miserable. Miserable. Calm down. No, you need to teach. You should have taught me when I was younger how to use the fire correctly. Yeah, I was wild. But I was like, I didn't care. You know, I found life. I found power, I found truth, I found hope, and I'm alive. And I let the religious dead into the grave. And I spent years in that, years. Don't spend, don't spend another hour, don't spend another day. He's alive in you, Christian, live, live. For freedom's sake, he made you free. What's that look like? I don't know, try being free for a while. Try being a child. We talked, I shared you guys that uh, passage where the Roman historian wrote his observations of Christians. And his, one of the observations was, they behave like children. What is that? That's the spirit of God in them. They're just carefree. They're just childlike. They're just, they act like kids. They like to have fun. They joke around. They play. Nothing's too serious for them. Because they're like children. It says they have an unexplainable love for one another. They behave like children, and they venerate Jesus as God. 
That's what he observed him. That's a non-believer. What would they do if they observed us? Would that be what they said? They're a bunch of, you know, whatever. I don't know what they would say, but I don't think it would be that. So they can't do it. So, okay, then it says, are you so foolish? Spirit empowers and maximum. So here's some of you that are really feeling like you just are capable. So you can be capable, but, and you're only going to get so far. If you understand this principle, you're going to go all the way. The Holy Spirit maximizes your abilities. He's the one that takes you higher. In the military, they call it a force multiplier. The ability to take a small force and make it more powerful. Jesus is a force multiplier. It's what he is. He takes your natural abilities and makes them supernatural. You think you're a good writer? Jesus will say, you can write a good book, Kevin, but with me, you're going to write a great book. You can create a good life, Kevin, but with me, you're going to make a great life. That's how it works. You can make a good marriage, but with me, you're going to make a great marriage. Goodness and greatness. It's the difference. It's all through the scripture. It's measure or fullness. You get to choose, Christian, if you want measure or you want fullness. You choose. You choose. You want good or you want great? We talk about the goodness of God. God has greatness. There's another level. The church has just discovered that God's good. So we're all goodness of God. That's the, that's the, that's the revelation of our generation is God's good. Hallelujah. You mean it's taken us almost 2,100 years to realize that? God's got a whole other level. He's great. He not only has goodness, he has greatness. Far surpassing Meanwhile, our enemies are threatening to kill us. So here's the fourth one, fear, right? So you have fatigue, you have frustration, you have faithlessness, we can't do it, and now you have fear. Our enemies are threatening to kill us. People are saying bad things about me. (laughs) They're Twittering about me. They're blogging about me. People are saying bad things. And they became afraid. You will not be who God has called you to be if you allow the opinions of others to determine who you are. You'll never do it. If all you're doing is worried about you taking a wind test to see if people like you or not, forget it, man. It's not going to happen. We start thinking, what might happen? Well, if I do this or I move out and we keep going, what are people going to think? What will they think if we actually build the work of God? What will they think if I actually live for Jesus? What will people think? Maybe you need some other people around you. What might happen, right? And so what was going on here with Nehemiah is the people were threatening to kill the other people because they were jealous and they were envious. What were they jealous and envious of? These were the same people. They were under the rulership of the same king that the Hebrew people were. And but yet the Hebrew people had favor and they didn't. This king just gave them a ticket and said, write your ticket, build the wall, do whatever you got to do, and I'll pay for it. You understand that? The Hebrew people went back to into Jerusalem, built the wall, built the temple, built the city, and the Persian nation paid for it. They paid for it. It's called the letter of Cyrus. Cyrus wrote a letter, handed it to Nehemiah, and says, whatever you need, you, present, you need timber, you go find the king's woodsmith, and you tell him what you need. You need stone, you need mortar, you need gold, you need silver. He had a letter, a decree from the king himself, saying, whatever this man needs, you give it to him. The, the letter of Cyrus. God, give us the letter of Cyrus. Come on. And they were envious because these people carried favor and these people carried influence. Christians get jealous and envious of one another. You have the same favor, Christian. God's no respecter of persons. What he's done for one, he'll do for another. He'll do the same for you. Maybe different than what he did for that person because you yourself are unique. You are not that person. But God will bring his goodness and his greatness into your life. If if he made one, if you see greatness in another person's life, God's going to bring greatness into yours. It may be different than theirs because you're different than them. You have a different mindset, a different skill set, a different makeup. You're wired differently. So they criticized. They made fun of them. Here's something. I'm going to help you with this one, right? This is going to help you. If you struggle with envy and jealousy, this is going to help you, right? You go, no, I don't. No, I don't. I was just sharing with somebody. I go, whenever the, you know the Holy Spirit's talking to you when you deny it. When the Holy Spirit goes, you have the sin of unbelief. And you go, no, I don't. I do not. Or the Lord goes, you're jealous. And you go, no, I'm not. I am not. That's the, one of the key indicators that the Spirit of God is talking to you because your first impulse is to deny it. You need inner healing. No, I don't. No way, not me. Uh-uh. Maybe her or him, but not me. No way. <laughs> they became envious. So if you struggle with envy, 
You are always envious and jealous of your ideal. What the person, the place, the thing, the whatever that you are envious of, somewhere in there is an ideal. Somewhere in there is a desire that you have. Whether it's influence, whether it's power, position, um, favor, whatever it is, your jealousy, one of the ways that you can constructively deal with jealousy is to realize that jealousy is related to an ideal. Why women get jealous of their husband's work, get jealous of their husband's time, or get jealous of all these other things. Why are they so jealous of something when they shouldn't be? Because in there is the ideal. They want that level of attention. You're jealous of that because you're, the, the attention is focused in another place, and your ideal is being, ta- you, you want that. We get jealous of other people. We get jealous of business leaders. We get jealous of ministry leaders. We get jealous of families because your ideal is there. Rather than getting jealous, why don't we go to the one who provides? And why don't we begin to seek God according to his purposes and say, Lord, this is what I want. You know, I don't want to be that person. I don't want his problems. I don't want anything. But what he does carry, he carries influence. I'd like that influence. And the Lord will go, you know what he's going to tell you? I'm going to tell you what he's going to tell you. He's going to tell you yes. Jesus always has a yes. Can you drink of the cup? Sit at my right hand. I can't give it to you, but I can, I can give you some other things. But you're going to have to go through a process. God will give you whatever. He will give you your heart's desire. What is in your heart is sired by him, and he wants to give it to you. God wants to give you what's in your heart. But you stand in the way. You're in the way of what God wants to give you. So a lot of times you go, Lord, I want this. And many of you, you've had prophetic words spoken over your life, and you're like, wow, that's just so true. And so why has that word come to pass? Because probably because you're in the way of that. God has to completely retool you and completely remake you. You want influence, Kevin? No problem. Here's what's got to happen. And he's going to confront your fear. He's going to confront your insecurities. He's going to confront your weaknesses. He's going to show you where they are. And your biggest enemy is your pride. Because your pride's going to go, nah. Pride isn't, I'm so great, I'm so wonderful. Pride protects the weakness within the soul. Pride denies the weakness within the soul. You have an attitude problem. No, I don't. Nah, not me. That's pride, people. That's pride. Humility is is where healing comes. Humility is where restoration comes. The question is, is how bad do you want it? Do you want what God has put in your heart more than you want to preserve your life? More than you want to preserve yourself? A lot of times God was, there's, there's a, there's a well, I, I'm not going to get into that, but I'll, I'll do that another time. Whew. Stay on the notes. All right, so here it is, right? So they were jealous and they were envious of the favor that they had. They were envious and jealous of the influence. So these people had influence with the king. They had favor with the king. They had confidence. They were jealous of them because these people were confidently living out a vision for their life. And so they became jealous. They're like, wait a second. We haven't done anything with our lives. Who do you think you are to do something with your life? And they became envious and began to ridicule them. They threatened them. And it says, then this, Nehemiah 4.12, those who lived closest to the enemy reported over 10 times that our enemy keeps saying, no matter what, where we go, they're going to attack us. Here's the point, right? You're always going to be discouraged if you listen to the haters. You are always going to be discouraged if you listen to the haters. And haters are everywhere. You have to find big arrow, uplifting, encouraging, right-thinking people and put them around you. These haters, these naysayers, these negative people, if all they're doing is reinforcing a negative opinion that you have about yourself, you're never going anywhere. Not going to happen. It says those who lived closest to the enemy. They kept living close. We, we're just, you know, I, I don't know, I, I don't want to go outside. Why? I keep watching the news every day and I think the sky is falling. The sky, well, stop watching the news. <laughs> What you feed on grows, what you starve dies. What are you feeding on? What are you feeding on? I want nothing to do. I told my wife, this is another area I've cut off. I'm like, I don't care. Or I'm like, I'm carefree. I don't care about politics. I don't care about government. I mean, I do, but it's not, I'm not focusing on that. I'm focusing on the kingdom. That's my calling. That's my purpose. God hasn't called me to be a senator. He's called me to be a pastor. He's called me to be a leader a revolutionary leader for his kingdom. And that's, that's my job. That's what I'm called to do. And so I don't care about any of that stuff. You know why? Because it's nothing but a distraction. It distracts me emotionally. It distracts me psychologically. Whatever's distracting you and whatever's draining that out of you, you need to deal with that. Stop living so close to the enemy. 
If you're, all you're doing is having Twitter wars and Facebook wars with people, <laughs> I have a few toxic people. Listen, so you know I'm a human being, and I have a few toxic people in my life just like you. I do. I do. Okay? And you know what I just did recently? Because this is all part of my plan. I unfriended a few of them. <laughs> I don't want to see your thread. I don't want to see your feed. I don't care. Carefree. Away we go. <laughs> don't care. Because it's distracting me. I want pie, and I pivot and put myself into more positive environments. And it's the same for you. That's what's going to help you. That's what's going to change you. Stop living so close to the enemy. If somebody on your Facebook, your Instagram, or your, your whatever, your social media feed, or somebody around you makes you jealous or provokes you, that's what Instagram really is. It's our highlight reel. That's what it is. Yeah. You ever look on Instagram? Nobody's having a bad day on Instagram. <laughs> Nobody. You would believe there isn't a problem in the world if you looked on Instagram. <laughs> Everybody's rich, happy, their kids are honor students. It's like, wow. <laughs> it's crazy. Okay, I'm going to read this for you. All right, all right, I'm going to read you two things. We're almost done. So, so the difference between exceptional and to, the difference between, this is a saying that I, but I just kind of put it out this way. The difference between acceptance and exceptional is acceptance is an attempt to get everyone to like you. Exceptional is a willingness to break from the crowd for something that is higher than self, knowing that everyone will not accept you. If you want to be accepted, if you want to be exceptional, if you want to be exceptional, you have to understand that not everybody's going to accept you. If you can't deal with that, you'll never be exceptional. Because people are going to be jealous, they're going to be envious, they're going to be threatening, they're going to want to take what you have, they're going to be against you. And they're going to be in the minority. You'll have 100 people that like you and three that don't. And who are you going to focus on? We end up focusing on the three people that don't like us, don't we? Right? It's why artists don't create. It's why musicians don't create. It's why people don't become who they are because they're afraid of the opinions of other people. Somebody's like, I'm going to be a musician. I'm going to start putting my music out there. They put it out. They start putting it out. And social media is an amazing platform to produce that. And you start putting it out there, and then you get four or five people that just dump on them, and then they don't make anything more. Because four or five people said something negative about you, you're going to let them define you. You're going to let them tell you who you are. The only person that has a right to tell you who you are is Jesus. Nobody has a right to define you. Your grandma, your family, your, uh, your, your circumstances, no one nowhere can define you. Only Jesus has a right to define you. And here's what you got to realize. You don't even have a right to define you. You don't have a right to define you. You can define you if you want to, but I choose to let Jesus define me. We're going to go to war if you start defining me in a and start characterizing me in a way that Christ does not define me. You want to see me rise up? That's not, I refuse. That is the core substance of you, of who you are as a person. The substance of who you are. So when people attack your identity, they're attacking the substance of who you are. When you attack your identity, you're attacking the substance of who you are. Jesus, the devil went right for the jugular on Jesus. He knows that. If you are the son of God, went right at his identity. If you really are the Messiah, you don't think if he challenges Jesus on who he thinks he is, you don't think he's going to look at you and go, if you really are a believer, if you really are a man of God, if you really are or whatever you are, he's going to challenge you the same way. You have to make up your mind that no one defines me but Jesus. Nobody. I didn't say I was perfect. I didn't say I'd do everything right. That's not the issue. I, don't say I didn't say I don't make mistakes. All of that's, that's conceited. But the only one that defines me is Jesus. I'm a son of the highest that makes mistakes. I'm an heir of this world and of the one to come that makes mistakes. <laughs> I'm imperfect, but I'm loved perfectly. Huge, huge. It's not the critic that counts, Teddy Roosevelt said. I'll read it for you. It's not the, one, it's not the man who points out how the strong man falls or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. Critics don't count. So if you're a critic and you like to be the person that criticizes everybody, you need to look yourself in the mirror and you need to say, stop criticizing because you don't count. Critics don't count. They're irrelevant. Irrelevant. The only power the critic has is the one that you give them. I don't give anybody that power. I refuse. I refuse. I refuse to give anybody that power over me. I refuse to let circumstances, people, places, things, no one defines me but Jesus. And the quest is to know who he says I am. The quest is for me to understand who he is, and the quest is for me to know what my calling is. 
That's the definition of my life, nothing else. And you've got to come to that raw determination because if you don't, you're going to be, it's, it's like runners in a race, right? We have the Miami Marathon here today. In the beginning, everybody's huddled together and it looks like everybody's going to win this race. But as the race goes on, the pack begins to separate, right? Life separates. Life will separate you. You're going to end up staying with the pack. You'll end up lagging behind. But if you want to win, you've got to refuse to let people do this. The credit belongs to the ones who are actually in the arena, whose faces are marred by dust and sweat and blood. Those who strive valiantly, they make errors, they come up short again and again because they know there is no effort or there is no effort without error or shortcoming. These are the ones who actually strive to do great deeds, who know great enthusiasms, great devotions, and who spend themselves in a worthy cause, who are at best in the end, they know the triumph of high achievement, and who at worst, if they fail, they fail while daring greatly. And they will forever be separated from the cold, timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. Which one are you? You have to create a margin for rest. So how do we get around discouragement? We have to create a margin for rest. Where you plan to fail, you, where you fail the plan, you plan to fail. You have to look at your life. We plan so many things, but we don't plan our, our lives. We have to realize we need rest. We have to realize we need downtime. What's it look like? Have some fun. Have some fun. Laugh a little. Everybody smile. Come on. Come on, you haven't smiled all week. I'm not smiling. This is serious. <laughs> Bible says laughter does the heart good like a medicine. Some of you need to laugh a little more. Get rid of the heartache. Get rid of the heart pain. Get rid of the sorrow. Laugh a little more. Have fun. Blow the steam off. You got to find a pressure valve. Get some sleep. Back away from the stress. It's the one way to deal with fatigue. Second one is to reevaluate what's not working. Some of you, you, you keep going and it keeps failing. You keep going and it keeps failing. And the goal may be good, but the strategy is wrong. What you're trying to achieve is good, but you're going about it the wrong way. You have to back up, evaluate what's wrong, and reorganize. That's what Jer Nehemiah did. He reorganized. He said, so I stationed armed guards at the most vulnerable places. He reinforced what was vulnerable around the wall, and he assigned families with their swords, lances, and bows. Right? So he created community, and he... And he, and he dealt with the areas of weakness. You have to look at what's not working and you have to do something different. What's causing the delay in progress? People, places, things, procrastination. Some of you, procrastination is your problem. You have a vision, but you're waiting to get around to it, right? I went to a motivational seminar a long time ago and they give you this, everybody, get, everybody got a circle. And in the circle was the words to it. And they go, here's your round to it. Now you have no more excuses. I'll do it when I get around to it. Well, here's your round to it. Now what's your excuse? <laughs> your schedule, some of you, it's procrastination. Schedule, relationship, eliminate. Sets. This is a big one. Set measurable, achievable goals. You ever do the laundry and you're like, I'm doing all this laundry today. <laughs> and, you, yeah, and you get halfway through and you're like, and you just pile it all in a basket and shove it in the corner, right? <laughs> You have to do, say, I'm going to do half the laundry day. I'm going to do a quarter. Set a measurable, achievable goal. Refocus on Jesus, right? So they became faithless because they were doing it in their own strength. Work towards and from his purpose. So what's his purpose? What does the Lord want in all this? Work from his purpose and work towards his purpose. Your life is spent on meaning. So try to find something meaningful. Live towards something that's meaningful. A lot of times people have no happiness because there's no meaning in their life. You have to have something meaningful. The definition of meaning is what glorifies the Father and blesses other people. Psalm 119 says, when I lost all hope, I turned my thoughts to the Lord again, Jonah said. There's a dude to be hopeless. Got swallowed by a whale. I don't know how bad it is for you, but you haven't been swallowed by a whale. <laughs> it's not that hopeless. <laughs> when my, in, uh, Psalm 119, my soul clings to the dust. Revive me according to your word. So it's his word and it's his spirit. Not just his spirit, but his word. How does God's word revive us? Well, logos is the written word. Rhema is the revealed word. So God, you may be reading the Bible and you're going to get encouragement. Read the book. You may be reading the Bible and God's going to give you an insight into that verse. You're going to get rhema. And then you're going to do get, there's another word called prophame, which is prophecy, which is a word of encouragement, exhortation, and value that's placed over you, a prophetic word given to you. All of those things encourage you. And I'm going to close right here. When you're dealing with discouragement, all of these things are great. All of these things are wonderful. But there's three things. I'll just leave you with this. This is simple. The goodness of God in your past, that's something that you can remember. God's been good to you before, hasn't he? 
hasn't he? He's delivered you somewhere, hasn't he? He's set you free somewhere, hasn't he? He's provided for you somewhere, hasn't he? Remember that. Remember his goodness to you in the past because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And if he did it then, he'll do it again. So his goodness of the past, his nearness in the present. I'll never leave you or forsake you. He's with you. I'll share a story with you just real briefly. Um, I'd oftentimes feel like God was away from me and all this other stuff. And the Lord showed me a vision of a well and that there was a bucket over the well. And he showed me, he said, Kevin, the water's in the well. You just don't drop the bucket. In other words, the provision that you're looking for is already there. You just don't reach for it. And we think God's far from us. God's never far from us. He's near us. He's given us his spirit. And one of the things that we don't do is we don't activate. We don't know how to learn to activate the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit's a comforter. Holy Spirit's an encourager. Holy Spirit leads you into all truth. Holy Spirit shows you what is to come. He actually reveals things to you. He takes from what is Jesus's and makes it known to you. And without that, you're never, all those things I just described without the Holy Spirit, and I'm not talking about some abstract knowledge of the Holy Spirit. I'm talking about an intimate personal relationship with the Spirit of God. None of those things are going to be manifest to you. You won't know comfort without knowing the comforter. And you feel Jesus is distant. Jesus said, it's to your benefit that I go away because I'm sending you somewhere more, someone who is going to activate on a grander scale than what I am in, as one person. Jesus is near you. And then also remember, he's got power for your future. He was good in the past. He's close to you now. And he's got power for your future. Right? Power for your future. You believe that? Yes. You encouraged? Yes. All right, no more discouragement today. That was my goal. All right. Yeah, let me pray for you. Let me bless you. We're going to have a prayer team available over here after service. If you um, need prayer for anything, there'll be some people standing over here along the wall. That's our prayer team. So if you need prayer, definitely take afford that. But let me bless you. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine down upon you. May the Lord be gracious to you in every way. And may he give you peace. And forever may you live within his favor. In Jesus' name, amen. God loves you. We love you. Have a wonderful week. Essentials is after the 11...